three verses of Peter's epistle, Peter's letter. It's also the 25th sermon and the final sermon in the series that we have been going through this, this year. And as we begin, I'd like to point out something that has become something of a common observation by many who observe these sorts of cultural trends, and that is that the family is struggling today. As an institution, the family is struggling to keep up with, if I may put it this way, to keep up with modern times. The family seems to be increasingly irrelevant. We can trace this trend, perhaps, on the grand scale to the ever-encroaching nanny state, as some people refer to it. Public policies that I think are probably often well-intentioned attempt to provide, or perhaps replace, what the traditional family unit has always done. This shows that the family is under attack from above. But it's also eroding from within or from beneath. Just think about your own family. Whether it's our commuter lifestyle, the corporate managerial economy which sends people across the country and separates families, the tendency for our ever-increasing standard of living for people who want to travel and see the world. So they're separated from their home church, they're separated from their families because of lifestyle and materialism. I think there's an idolatry, I'm calling it an idolatry of sports, of athletics, professional sports, amateur sports, destroying the family. Pursuing pursuits of higher education, job aspirations, tend to crowd out traditional family devotions, and I mean the kind where you actually sit down at the table together as a family and open up the Bible, that kind, but just the ordinary rhythms of seeing each other, yes, eating together, playing together, unstructured time, walking, spending time with neighbors. So the family's eroding from beneath, from under our feet. And I'm not even talking about divorce and the confusion about sex roles in our modern times. And if I got into the decline of marriage and childbearing and the extension of the childbearing years, we'd be off on an entirely different subject. Clearly, the family is struggling. But thankfully, God has given us a ballast a balancing. If there's two buoys and one is struggling, there's another buoy that is keeping the ship afloat. And it's called the family of God. It's the church. Now, the church is not immune from the downgrades that we're seeing affecting the family. As a pastor, I know this. After all, what is the church but a family of families? It's a gathering of families. But one of the key roles of the church, and my focus this morning, is the role that the church plays 
as family to families. You see, the church isn't just a collection of families. The church is a family for your family. And so as some of you are checking out the church and thinking about Mercy Hill as a possible home congregation, this is an important message for you. As you see here, at least in principle, what this church stands for, what, what we believe our, our role is. It's, it's not simply to provide you some, some consumables. We're actually asking you to make a family commitment. We call it an in-covenant commitment when people join the church as, mer- as, uh, as members. See, the church is a kind of patterned family. It should be a, a paradigm family. When our human family ties and traditions are crumbling all around us or collapsing above us. So that's my sermon title, The Family of God. And it's the last sermon in Peter's epistle. So I feel some pressure here. We need to land the plane. And I love Peter. I've, I've fallen in love with Peter. I'm not quite sure how to tie it off. So I'm imagining we'll wrap up around 2 this afternoon. Does that sound good? No, just three verses, so it'll be more like 12.30. The last three verses contain precious truths about the church, which I'm calling the family of God, that I think God wants you to know in order to live your life as a Christian, but also so that you can better situate yourself and find your place in the family of God. And if you're someone without a family or separated from your family or struggling with your family, this morning's message is good news indeed. Let's begin by reading this portion of God's word and asking God to bless not only the reading but our hearing of its explanation. This is the eternal word of God, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love, peace be to all of you who are in Christ. Let us pray. God, we stand before your word as uh, sometimes it seems as looking at a foreign language, its mysteries impenetrable because of the fog that surrounds us in our ignorance. We stand before your word, Lord, at times like children before the collected works of all the philosophers, playing with those volumes like toys, completely unaware of the jewels that they contain. And we certainly stand before your word as we've already reviewed and reminded ourselves this morning as, as disqualified because of our sins. So qualify us. 
Help us to grow up, to have the mind of Christ and make clear what is cloudy, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The family of God. First, the names in the family of God, the titles are familiar and literally familiar because our word family and the word familiar are related. Familiar, if you spell it out. Look at at least two familiar names, Sylvanus and Mark. Who is Sylvanus? Well, Sylvanus is another name for Silas. One of the most stalwart and important figures in the New Testament. And he's also the name of the son of one of our elders. It's a good name. Silas, a.k.a. Silvanus, do you know he helped to deliver, along with another faithful man, the Jerusalem decree to all the churches? This is, can be found in Acts 15, 22. Of all the disciples at this key moment, I won't go into the details this morning, they chose Silas as one of the two guys to deliver this important message to the churches. You know, Silas joined Timothy and Paul in their pastoral ministry to the Greek city of Thessaloniki. And he earns a top-tier billing in the first lines of both letters to the church in Thessalonia. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Silas is mentioned. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Silas is mentioned again. So he was trusted by the churches, and he was trusted by Peter. Peter says that he is a faithful brother as I regard him. It's as if Peter is saying, me, little old Peter, you know, I'm just the leader of the twelve. He's not going to say that, but he's saying, just so you know, I regard Silas as a faithful brother. So the churches that are reading this letter or hearing it read more likely, very possibly hearing it read by Silas, very possibly hearing Silas explain the letter that Peter wrote as a preacher, they're being told in this phrase that Peter writes, it's, a, it's like a telegraph, they're being told, you can trust him. He's a solid dude. He's a faithful brother. By Silvanus, by Silas, verse 12, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. What does this mean? Well, all preachers call their sermons brief. And for my final, final, final point, if you haven't heard that before, it's a favorite. You know, uh, Peter's only five chapters. I can't help but wonder if, if Peter hasn't got a twinkle in his eye. He says, this ain't Roman, friends. This isn't 16 chapters. This isn't First and Second Corinthians almost 
30 chapters. I've only written to you briefly. In fact, the letter to the Hebrews, we don't know the author of that great letter in the New Testament. He calls it a brief exhortation. It's 13 chapters long. But he says, I've written by Silvanus, he says. I have written briefly. Maybe Silvanus was more than just a courier. To write by someone or through someone is a common way of designating the person who would carry the letter. You're essentially your, your, your courier. It's a common way to designate that. But on occasion, we see this phrase, by so-and-so or writing through so-and-so, as an indication that the person actually wrote it. Now, I think it's the first case in this case. I think Silas or Silvanus is the courier, but maybe at least he was a sounding board for Peter. Silas, what do you think about this phrase? Maybe he was a research assistant. Silas, could you look that up in the Old Testament, that scroll over there? Maybe as some scholars think, Peter, the humble fisherman, his Greek wasn't that good, and maybe Silas, i.e. Silvanus, a Roman citizen, was, had a master's degree in Greek. Maybe he helped polish up some of the Greek here. Either way, he is a faithful brother. And so it's a familiar name. Silvanus or Silas most likely would have been familiar to many people in the ancient church. But it's also a familiar name because Peter calls him a brother. It's a family name. Now Peter was married. He had relatives. We read about his mother-in-law in the scriptures. Most likely Peter had children. Silas was not his actual brother. Silas was a brother by another mother. Silas and Peter shared the same father who caused them both to be born again by the living word to an eternal hope kept in heaven which can never fade, 1 Peter chapter 1. The name of brother is kind of thrown around these days, particularly at sporting events, I've noticed, or at the gun range or at some other place where the guys hang out. What's up, brother? Knock the forearm, bump the fist, handshake, bro hug, pat, pat. What's up, brother? Heaven's high school reunion. Haven't seen you. Pat, pat. I like that. Yes, men are funny. We do funny things. But be careful who you call brother. If you're a born-again believer in Christ, are you throwing this term around indiscriminately? Do you use it in the wrong place? Have you diluted its power and its significance?
To give an example, when I was getting married, my brother was not able to stand, my own brother, I have one sibling, a, a younger brother, he was not able for a number of reasons to stand as my best man. And so I prayed a lot about it, and another man stood up for me. He was my brother. His name is Andy. And Andy was, as it says in Proverbs 27, verse 10, a neighbor who is near is better than a brother who is far away. A neighbor, a near one, a kin, a kin by space is better than kin by blood is what the proverb is saying, Proverbs 27, 10. And that's a little bit like what the church should be. The church should be a brotherhood. Peter's used this two or three times in the epistle. In fact, if you just look a few verses back in <clears throat> chapter, nine, chapter 5, verse 9, it says your brotherhood throughout the world is suffering just like you are. It's a family of suffering, according to Peter. A, a, a community of shared struggle. And so our kinship is based on our relationship to God through Jesus Christ and our common struggle with living that out in a world that hates Christians. The next familiar name is John Mark. Peter just calls him by his middle name, Mark. Verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. After Pentecost, the disciples actually meet in John Mark's mother's home. And that's the place when Peter was released from prison by a miracle through an angel in Acts chapter 12. Herod was going to kill all, the, all of the Christians at this point. There was a persecution in Acts 8 that focused on the Greek-speaking Jews and Christians. But by the time we get to Acts 12, the persecution had ratcheted up a notch. Peter was in jail. They had already killed James, the son of Zebedee. Peter was next in line, and an angel releases him from prison. And where does Peter go? He goes to John Mark's mother's house. As Ed Clowney explains in his commentator, many years after this, Mark joins Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey. But Mark turns back when they enter Asia Minor for some reason, and is rejected by Paul as a missionary companion for the rest of the way. Later, however, he and Paul were reunited, and he became Paul's companion in Rome and quite profitable to him. We're not sure when Peter's association with Mark began, but it's close. Do you notice what Peter calls him here? He says, as does Mark, my son. Maybe Peter was the one who led Mark to Christ. You know what it means to lead someone to Christ? It means to take them by the hand spiritually and say, let me introduce you to someone that's changed my life. His name is Jesus. Come with me. And typically when you lead someone to Christ, you'll open the scriptures 
You point them to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And Peter might have said this to Mark. He said, Mark, do you believe this? And Mark said, I believe. If that happened, and it's it's possible, but it doesn't say this in the Bible, so I'm using my imagination here, then Peter became Mark's spiritual father. And Mark became his spiritual son. But it may be that Mark is his son in the gospel in another way. Because we have four gospels, Matthew, Luke, John, which one did I skip? Mark. John Mark wrote one of the four Gospels. So not only is Silas a good name, Mark is a good name. He's the author of the second Gospel, which is believed by historians with the testimony of the ancient church backing them to have been Peter's account of the life and death of Jesus. Can you imagine the days and weeks that Peter and Mark must have spent together toiling over this masterpiece of Christian literature? Perhaps the most precious gospel in some people's minds, the gospel of Mark, the shortest, briefest, most compact, most compelling telling of the story of Jesus. Oh, I think after that experience, even if Peter never led him to Christ, that he would have looked at Mark, the one who reduced the story of the gospel to words with him and for him, Peter would have seen Mark as his son in the gospel. I wonder if you have a spiritual mother or a spiritual father. I do. I have one of each. And in my case, my parents also played a role, though it came a little later on, in my Christian journey, not right away. Early on and later on. But when I was in the forge with the Holy Spirit, God sent a woman named Tally, who was three years older than me, and modeled for me Christian joy that I had never seen in my life. And she became a big sister, a mother in Christ to me. And later on, the man that helped prepare me for ministry and show me by his example, both good and bad, what it means to be a pastor, Tim. He was actually here the last two Sundays. He's like a father to me. And I have other spiritual fathers and mothers as well. Do you have a spiritual father, a spiritual mother? Are you born again should be the first question. If you're a born-again believer, then who is that person? They they need a thank you today. They need to know that you see them this way. If they don't, they need to hear from you that you love them like a father or a mother. And by the way, that you desire to honor them as a father and a mother. And you know, it's the nature of the case of parenting that parents start off with with a sprint, changing diapers and chasing children around. And then around the age of 13, it slows down to pretty good clip and then when the kids start leaving which is the stage of parenting that I'm at you just look around and you're like why am I running 
There's no one here. What was I doing? Did anybody notice? Did I make a difference? And so parents go through this, and I know some of you, because you're encouraging me and my wife at this stage of time, and some of you have shared the same with me, and you need your sons and daughters to tell you, yes, you made a difference. So that spiritual mom or dad needs to hear from you. These are familiar names, and you have to make an effort. We have to practice this. In this congregation, we should see the young people in the church. See, you should see, if you're 8, 9, 10, 12, 15, 20 years old, you should be seeking out an older, wiser, more gray-haired or bearded saint and saying, would you mentor me? Would you show me the scriptures? Even if you're older, seek out someone who's more mature than you. If you're just getting started in the faith and you're in your 40s or your 50s or your 60s, you need a mentor. And it's a privilege to be a spiritual son or daughter. We also have not only familiar names, Silas, Mark, but as a family of God, we have a common destiny and a common history. This is my second point. Look at the text. <clears throat> Verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. What an interesting thing to say. Is Peter in Babylon? And who is she? Is Babylon a woman? No. The woman is in Babylon. Is it his wife? I said he was married. No. His wife was not in Babylon. Peter was never in Babylon. In fact, there was no Jewish community in Babylon at the time that this was being written because Babylon didn't exist. It had been leveled to the ground and had not yet been rebuilt. Babylon is code language. It's a symbol. She who is in Babylon is symbolic for the church that Peter served, most likely in Rome. If you turn over a few pages in your Bible to the little book of 2 John, 2 John chapter 1 says this, the elder, which is John, to the elect lady and her children. See, Scripture has a way of referring to churches in the feminine, referring to them as noble ladies, as stately women. The elect lady, the woman in Babylon. It's the church that Peter is a part of in this place that he's referring to as Babylon. But why does he refer to his church as Babylon? Because of a common history. Well, if you haven't read your Old Testament, this may be new to you. I'll keep it a short summary, but this is a plug. Read your whole Bible, not just the New Testament. Babylon was the capital of a ruling empire around the 7th, 6th century B.C. So around the 600s, the dominant empire in the world was not the United States of America. And it definitely wasn't Rome. It was the kingdom of Babylon, led by none other than Nebuchadnezzar. 
And God had sent Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar, to take the chosen elect people in Israel and remove them from the land for their sin and deposit them in parts far flung, including Babylon itself. This is called the exile or the diaspora, the dispersion. And so the common history, according to one commentator, Karen Jobes, just as God's people had been driven out of Jerusalem into exile, into Babylon, the capital city of their oppressors centuries before, Peter is saying to his readers that he and they are exiles from their home under the reigning ruling power of a kingdom not that different than Babylon, equally corrupt, equally luxurious, equally sinful. She who is in Babylon greets you. The church in exile here in Rome greets all of you who are in the Roman provinces, also in exile. We're together. We're family. Family of exiles. The family of God. We may speak different languages. We may have different cultures. We may have different foods. But we have this in common. We've been bought by the blood of Christ. We've been born again into a living hope. We're no longer citizens of this city. Our inheritance is in heaven. And so she, the church, in exile in Rome, greets you all, the churches, in exile in the provinces. We are one. But this common history points to a common destiny. Because just as Babylon came under judgment and was no more, Rome would come under judgment. And at least in its form, will never again be known. Which brings me to our country. Now our church doesn't have a, a flag on the stage. Our session has discussed it. Many churches do. I don't have a problem with it. But as a board of elders, we've agreed that is not what we're going to do. And here's why. We are exiles in Babylon. We are citizens proud of our country. We're proud of this nation. We're glad for our freedoms. We pray for them. We resist oppression when we can, and it makes sense. But our fundamental loyalty is not here. It's with God in heaven. And our first identity is as Christians, not as Americans. That's the application. Common destiny. You see, this world order in which English is the lingua franca and the dollar is almighty and our battleships can go wherever they want and pretty much beat anybody we want to, that is not going to last forever. So you can't live like it. And if you're born and bred in New Jersey, born in the USA, then you need to be reminded that we live in exile in Babylon. And this, this society is making it harder and harder not to know that because it's, it's fairly intensely negative towards people of faith, generally speaking, and specifically negative towards Christians. This will go a great deal. This will go a long ways, by the way, to make our church a welcoming place for people from different nations when we understand and right-size our, our, our citizenship identity aspects. 
This is not a political pitch about the border wall, by the way. That's for after the service. We can talk about that. What I'm telling you here is you are a Christian, first and foremost, in Babylon. We're learning about the family of God and two things our text shows us about the church, the family of God. We use familiar names, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, and we have a common history and destiny with all other Christians around the world. The third point is that we have intimate gestures that show our relationship to one another. Greet one another with a kiss of love. I've been looking forward to preaching this point since I started the book. See, we have some issues here with personal space. <laughs> you know, I'm told in Japan it's like nine feet. You know, good morning, good morning. Germany, it's about six. South Jersey, five and a half. Unless you're of Italian-American extraction, then you're right up in the face. I see that hand. What is a kiss of love? It is a ritual, religious, non-sexual greeting in the context of a worship service, typically between people of the same sex, that underscores our family ties as sons and daughters of Jesus, brothers to the King. That's what it is. It is common in the New Testament. Romans 16, 16. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. All epistolary conclusions in which the holy kiss, that's Paul's phrase, or the kiss of love, which is Peter's phrase, is encouraged. And then there's the kiss of death. Judas. Would you greet the Son of Man with a kiss? All through the Bible, relatives, friends greet one another with kisses, usually on the cheek, perhaps on both cheeks, sometimes on the lips as an expression of intimacy and family. The Bible uses kiss in a figurative way as well. Proverbs 24, 26, I love this. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. How ironic that this is how Judas identified Rabbi Jesus on the night of his arrest. The idea is that what could be more transparent and open and honest than a kiss? And Judas took this beautiful sign of fraternal bonds and fellowship to the Lord himself and turned it into a capital lie. And then I love this gospel promise in Psalm 85, verse 10. Righteousness and peace have kissed one another. And when you read that opposite to Romans 3, 24 to 26, you have the entire gospel. The kissing, the embracing of the holiness of God and the love, mercy, peace, and grace of God. They embrace in the person of Jesus Christ. That's Psalm 85, 10. But kissing is not that common today. One of my applications is that husbands and wives need to kiss each other. That's what I said. 
intimacy, physical, close, swapping of saliva is important for those who are married. Am I embarrassing you middle schoolers? Too bad. This is how you came into the world. It started with a kiss. Be careful who you kiss. The, the, the kiss of love in Scripture is non-sexual. Of course, husband and wife can be extremely erotic, extremely romantic. But it can also be a kiss of love. When I kiss my wife, I'm kissing her as a sister in Christ. And too many old marriages, 10, 20, 30 plus years, the spark is gone. And there's nothing more beautiful than a, than a husband of decades kissing his wife of decades as if she were his girlfriend. Embracing her with a passion, however it may have waned, it's still there. And if I'm starting with marriage, how does that relate to the church? The absence of this intimate expression in the church isn't necessarily a good thing. Now, it's not necessarily a bad thing. This is not like the sacrament of communion where we are required to kiss one another or are being disobedient to God the Holy Spirit. It's, after all, a cultural expression of a Christian truth, which is that we are born again into the same spiritual family and our love to one another needs to have appropriate physical manifestations of that spiritual reality, okay? So I've qualified that. But having done so, is your hesitation to embrace another Christian physically, whether it's a handshake or a hug or a kiss, is that just because you're uncomfortable with it? Is your life being shaped by your theology or is your theology shaping your life? Scripture says greet one another with some tangible, tactile thing that could possibly involve coming in contact with his or her saliva. That's what it's saying. And don't tell me they just didn't understand Louis Pasteur's transmission of bacteria back in the day. They didn't, necessarily. But are we really that much smarter than them? The word kiss in Greek is derived from love. So some specific form of love, physical, bodily, incarnated form of love needs to describe our relationship together that seems a little strange to the average New Jersey neighbor. And if that's men kissing men in a non-sexual, fraternal way, so be it. Maybe it's two men sitting down eating coffee together and they're not gay. This is serious business. Maybe it's two men, as they do in Africa, holding hands, which I saw when I was in Uganda years ago, and it shocked me and awed me. And I'm told, even in our country, in the mid-20th century, two men who wanted to have close communion together would walk and hold hands and talk in low voices as a sign of their affection for one another. 
embracing one another, even if it's just the bro hug. That matters. Touching the cheeks in the embrace, touching the foreheads is a symbol, a traditional symbol in replacement of kissing. Two men touching the heads is a kiss of love. Listening to one another. A great theologian once said, if I had one hour with someone, I'd spend the first 55 minutes listening and the last five minutes giving advice. An ear, a listening ear, can be a kiss of love. In short, greeting believers as you would greet family. My final point in closing application I've been speaking of the breakdown of the human family, and yes, we can thank God for the family of God. I love the Gaither's song, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. But what keeps the church from going down the same path is the gospel. And the gospel is in our passage. I have written briefly to you, verse 12, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And see, the gospel isn't just the grace of God. It's standing firm in the grace of God. And we sang, he will hold me fast. And I love Gladiator. I'm sorry, I love the, um, my two favorite movies. So Master and Commander, the movie with Russell Crowe. There's that scene where the old grizzled sailor has tattooed on his fingers, hold fast, and he's holding the rope. And so hold fast to the gospel. It isn't just believe the gospel but with that athletic posture and the grizzled hands of an old sailor holding fast to the gospel amidst the storm. This is what Peter says that we do. We have a shared calling. It's to believe the good news and to hold on to the good news and to help one another hold on to the good news. Peace, it says in verse 14, to all of you who are in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, may you know None of these things until you trust in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this study this morning and our time in this magnificent letter, we pray that you will drive home our identity as the family of God in a hostile society that is not friendly to faith us who are tempted to compromise in one way or another or are actively abandoning our faith, would you stop us in our tracks and remind us to stand firm, hold fast to the grace of God and experience the peace that only can be found in Jesus. In his name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.